0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Thanks to my daughter, Abby, for leading the prayer, Um, and thank you so much uh, for having me this morning to fill in for our beloved Pastor Scott, who is away at a denominational meeting this weekend. My name is Matthew Nikoloff. I'm actually the priest at the South Wedge Mission, which is a Lutheran Episcopal uh, church right up the road. We worship at 5 p.m. on Sunday evenings, and uh, we are, like I say, we're friends with Artisan. We do a lot of stuff together, but in our own kind of, in our own kind of ways. And so uh, my family also worships here in the morning. It's really a wonderful gift to us as a family to have a place to just come and be uh, disciples, and not always have to be the one discipling. And so uh, this church has given infinite value and infinite gifts to our family, and we're really grateful for that. So it's, it's a really a great opportunity to get to uh, share back with you this morning. Um, how many of y'all were here for Scott's sermon last week? Show of hands if you don't want to like... Okay, okay, cool. So some of you were here. Did anybody get to listen to it on podcasts? Anyone else? Yeah? Some of the same people? Like, re-listen to it? It was a really good one, right? Um, and, and Scott talked about the passage from Romans 13, namely Romans 13, 1 through 7, which talks about the authority of the state and the relationship that Christians are allegedly supposed to have to state power. And the reason it was a salient passage, as you'll recall, is that a certain high-level member of the uh, current political administration cited Romans 13 in order to defend the then-active policy of family separation at the border. And when all sorts of Christians from all sides of the spectrum... Of politics and theology and beliefs from the left all the way to the right started to push back. The Attorney General cited Romans 13 and said, Don't you know that it's your job to submit to the authorities and allow them to follow, allow them to enforce the laws, right? So sit down, stay in your own lane, church. Um, and as Paul pointed out, not only has that, ta- that move been used by governments throughout history to justify things like apartheid and slavery, and Jim Crow, and the Holocaust. So not only is it problematic from that standpoint, and we don't really want to be aligning ourselves as the Christian church with the worst of our history and our biggest mistakes, um, it's also biblically problematic. It's biblically problematic because it's proof-texting one particular text, one little seven-verse snippet of text, and pickpocketing it out of the Book of Romans, and reading it in isolation for one's own purposes, rather than seeing it in the context of the Book of Romans the context of the whole library of the Bible, the context of the whole Christian tradition, and also the context of Jesus, right? And Jesus' teachings of love. The, Jesus, the criminal who was crucified for resisting the state and refusing to bow down to um, the idolatrous powers of his time. And so Scott did a great job, I think, of unhinging us a little bit, unhooking us a little bit, hopefully unhinging you too, I'm sure. Um, from one particular way of reading the text, which has not only been problematic in history, but is also biblically problematic. And from the sound of it, that was really liberating for a lot of people to realize, oh yeah, the, gov- the Bible doesn't just say, do whatever the government tells me to do, because we're a Christian nation, etc., etc. And that should raise concerns for all of us who take on the name of disciple of Jesus. Um, because, you know, it's one thing to be against the administration you don't like, and to start getting all brouhaha about, you know, the guy that um, is violating all of our senses of decency. But as Christians, we've always had a struggle throughout the history of the church with power. Namely, political power. Feeling powerless. And who we choose to align ourselves with in order to achieve the ends of the kingdom. Where do we get power and where do we turn when we feel powerless, Right? I remember one of my biggest moments um, for me that was kind of harrowing was in seminary. That's a great intro to a story, right? (laughs) Seminary stories. Uh, But I went to Duke Divinity, which is this hardcore, like, don't get involved in politics at all. The church should be this, like, radical outside community that's always challenging the state. Kind of this, like, almost Christian anarchism kind of approach, very much like the the Mennonites and the um, Amish who kind of separate from in order to be a witness to the state rather than a witness through the state and everyone was so big on that up until about the year 2008. And why? Because we didn't like the president from 2000 to 2008, right? And suddenly, the guy we like went into office. Barack Obama was elected and all those kind of left-leaning liberal Christians suddenly started saying, the state looks awfully nice right now. Actually we should be voting, for. we should get involved in politics, we should be supporting everything that the president says. And granted, you might think that's a good idea because maybe his policies and what he represented is closer to your perspective and your idea of how a government should function, and that's okay. Christians are not called to be completely divorced from or uh, uninterested in from politics. But it is a problem when we start to give our power away as the church to people and institutions that are not meant to wield our power as the church. Sometimes I think we as the church think too little of ourselves and our ability to affect change and our ability to be ministers of God's gospel in the world. We don't see things materializing in the pace we want them to. We don't see um, change happening in the world fast enough. We don't see our own wealth or our own prosperity or security growing. And oftentimes the churches sin throughout history has been to say well the church can't do it so let's give it to the government let's farm out our mission to the government and then we can kind of just sit back say we voted and let things happen and then act like it's not our fault when sometimes people come into power who don't do the right thing with the power that we've given them but as in so many comic books and stories and everything else once you've given away the power you can't take it back and we dug that grave for ourselves as the christian church thousands of years ago We've been giving away our power to the state as soon as the state offered to cut us a deal. As soon as the Roman Empire said, we'll make you the state religion of the church. And we'll make you the state religion of the empire. We'll promise you security and a voice in the government and power. The church said, great, I guess we can be a little less radical. I guess we can be a little more war- warlike, a little more violent. I guess we can start paying taxes and making some compromises. Thank God that we are active in politics because through politics and through the government, Christians have made a lot of good and a lot of change happen throughout the centuries. So this is not a get-out-of-politics speech. This is not a condemnation of people who are making policy or who are advocating or work tirelessly, tirelessly through government occupations, including teachers and police officers and firefighters and everyone else who works really hard to make sure that the world is a better place. But what i like to do is Look at Romans 13 again, not just from what it says that we don't have to do about the government, but what kind of power that it is giving to the church vis-a-vis the government. If the, church, if the government has certain powers, what are the powers that the church has? What is the calling and the mission of the church to make real political change for the sake of the kingdom of God in the world? It's a question of power. And any good community organizer will tell you that power is a good thing. Power is not power over people. It's not the power to dominate other people. It's not the power to control or coerce other people. But it is the ability to organize people and resources in order to accomplish one's mission. In that sense, we should all want more power. We should all want more of the right kind of power and the right kind of posture towards power because God has empowered us with the Holy Spirit to bring about the kingdom of God in this world, in the midst of things. And what I want to um, try to work through today through the book of Romans, which is no small task, and I'll try to do it as, as nimbly and quickly as possible, is that the book of Romans is all about power. It's all about what kind of power the church is called to rely on and the kind of power it's called to wield in the struggle of faith and the struggle to bring salvation to the world not just save people from their sins so they can sign up, go to heaven, give us a check and keep paying us so we can keep our church building open, but the power to make all things new, the power to practice the ministry of reconciliation, the power to overthrow the forces of oppression and hatred and violence, and the power to love a new world into being in the name of Jesus. Paul opens the Gospel of Romans, and remember just building on what Scott said, we need to read passages in the context of the whole book or letter that they were written in. One of the first things Paul really says after his introduction in the Gospel of Rome, the Gospel of Rome, it is a gospel. It's really nice. And it's got good news. And I don't know—I didn't know how to do all the screeny stuff, so uh, it's—I uh, don't even have the page, but it's on. Uh, let me find it real quick. Page nine fourteen, Romans 1, um, 16 through seventeen. And remember, these subheadings that are in, in the um, the Bible are also not part of the original text, like the Holy Spirit didn't inspire chapter headings and verse numbers. That's just stuff we use to kind of help ourselves find our way around this. But I do like this heading, so I'll pick and choose a little bit too. It says the power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For, in, the right, for it, in, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. How many of, of us have grown up hearing that the book of Romans is a really awesome piece of theology that Paul wrote? It's this theology which kind of explains the whole gospel, and it talks about you know, how, how sinful we are, and how we couldn't do it on our own, so God builds a bridge over that chasm. And if we just accept God into our hearts, then we get to be saved right? That's Romans Road, right? It's a nice story. It's a nice plot for the gospel. And there's all sorts of amazing things in the book of Romans. One thing we forget if we don't read the gospel of Romans in its entirety, all the way through in its context, is that Paul wasn't writing theology. He wasn't an academic sitting around thinking, I need to pen a good article about how theology works and how, God, and how justification refutes all those other people's, you know, other views or dispensationalists or whatever and over there at that other seminary. So let me lay out my thought in a very systematic and orderly fashion. That's not who Paul was, right? Paul was like a political refugee who was fleeing from persecution both by his own people and the government. Who was always moving around, always trying to preach the gospel, always facing violence and persecution. And in the midst of all that was trying to be a pastor and a preacher. So the, 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 the gospel of Romans, I will stop saying that. The epistle to the Romans is a letter that he's writing on the run, trying to communicate something to a group of people who are also facing a problem. All of the letters in the New Testament are not just documents that Paul wrote with us in mind so that we could have some nice proof texts and theology to quote at each other and see who's the best Orthodox Christian and who's not. They were living documents written as part of this story of the early church. There were communications to people that he loved in relation with them, trying to help them through a problem. They're stories, and they're part of a bigger story. The story that we can kind of surmise, just even from this initial statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is real power. It is power for all, to bring salvation to the world. Written to a group of Christians who reside, not in like the boondocks, but in Rome, which is kind of the greatest center of power in the universe should make us think, what is Paul doing in this letter, writing to people who live in the shadow of the greatest political force the world has ever known, that has the power to crush its enemies with its armies and its technology and its superiority? What is he doing talking about power? And the whole gospel, the whole um, epistle of Romans is about flipping that script, helping people live in the shadow of empire, people living in the shadow of earthly power, to remember that there is a greater power. And that power doesn't necessarily look how we think it will look. If you got a brief outline of the book of Romans, and again, I apologize if I could have done technology stuff, I would have put it up there. But right, the book of Romans starts with this kind of troubling but also kind of hardcore description of how the whole world has fallen, right? And there's some um, texts that we wrestle with, especially as a LGBTQ affirming community, in there. But they're within this greater flow of text, which is talking about the cosmic fall of the world. The whole world has fallen. The whole world lives in this slavery to one's selfishness and one's addiction to power. The whole world is is enwrapped in the powers of darkness. That's not what the Romans taught. The Romans taught that the whole world was wrapped in this veil of peace, that the Roman Empire had finally brought the Pax Romana, the universal peace. Everything was great. Um, Everyone has prosperity. Everyone has access. And here's Paul right away preaching a different gospel than the state is preaching, saying, actually, the world is really messed up. Every single bit of it. He can't come out right in this text and say, especially you, Rome, because they'll come and find him. He's right in Rome, right? And these letters were not written to be read in private by one or two people. They were read to be read out loud like this in a community like this. And so he had to be very careful how he phrased things so that when the spies from the government were listening in, they couldn't peg them for being seditious. But there's something seditious about saying this whole world is way more messed up than the government is leading you to believe. There's more, um, there's more, um, there's more in virtue and there's more um, sinfulness and there's more oppression and there's more imbalance than they're leading you to believe. Then he moves into talking about Jesus and about how saying we all are part of that. We're all sinners, right? We're all enraptured by this system of oppression. The system of fallenness, the shadow, if you will, that has fallen over the world. It's very sci-fi in some ways. And out of that, where does salvation come from? Not from the Roman ethic of being really virtuous and working really hard and conquering your enemies, but from a man who is crucified. From a man whose crucified body holds up the whole world. From following this guy, not Caesar, but the broken one, and having faith in him. True power comes from our sinfulness being restored, not from our virtue making us great. The true gospel is of Jesus who became as death so that we might become as life, right? He goes through this beautiful unpacking of the gospel, and right in the midst of that, he talks about how God's love is proven to us in Romans 5. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and this proves God's love for us, and this is the state of grace in which we stand. So he's just, he says that in Romans 5 and goes on to talk about how the whole creation is groaning, right? He talks about baptism and some other awesome stuff. And then he gets into Romans 8, this beautiful passage where the whole creation is groaning, but you are no longer slaves to sin, but you are adopted children of God. And the world is waiting for you to be revealed. Not just the person down the street so that they can know you're a Christian so they'll come to church. Not just be nice to your little sister so that you can get some bonus points and sit closer to Jesus when you get to heaven. The whole world, which is groaning and is enslaved to the shadowy power of sin and death, is waiting for you to be revealed. Not Caesar, not the next consul or the next senator or the next political agenda. It's waiting for you to accept the power of the gospel and to wield it, to rise up against the powers of sin and death and make this world the good, generous, abundant, loving, grace-filled place it was meant to be. Amen. And Paul's not just done there, because then he goes into this confusing part from Romans 9-11, through 11, where it's all about, are the Jews still in or not? And guess what? Most scholars would agree, he kind of says, yeah, that Jews actually aren't kicked out of this thing. You're actually the ones who are being included into their story, not vice versa. Which totally messes with our idea that somehow this is ours, and we get to decide who's in and out and it's our virtue, and it's our faith, and it's our good works that make us good. He's like, yeah, actually, all this is just because the Jews came first, and I was generous enough to include you into somebody else's story. So you're not even the only agent of mine working in the world to make things new. You're just one of them. <laughs> it's very humbling, right? He's turning all these things upside down. This whole ethic of, like, you're successful, and you're powerful, and you're virtuous, so you get to be the hero. He's saying, no, you're the sinners. You're the sinners. You're the broken ones. And you're not even the first ones. You're just kind of the B team that I brought in at the last minute to bring things up. (laughs) And I'm going to give you power. And that's when we come to Romans 12 and 13, which um, Scott alluded to last week. We need to read together. So if you'll turn in um, in your Bibles, I'm not used to being able to say that. It's so cool. To page 922. I want to do something that's going to, it might seem awkward, but I want to read all of Romans 12 and 13. It's not as long as it sounds out loud. And I actually want you to close your Bibles, if you don't mind. I shouldn't have told you. You can, you can have them out if it gives you like that, that feeling of safety and security. That's okay. I get it. You need, you need your, I have my notes. You know, you have your thing. But I want you to hold on to those because I want you to listen. Because that's how it would have been like as the people receiving this letter. It would have been a congregation like this. And one of the leaders, who Paul lists at the end of the, script, at the, end of the letter, would have read this from Paul. And after hearing all that stuff I just talked about, but read, you know, as the 11 <laughs> chapters, then we get to this part. That's how scripture was communicated in Paul's day. They didn't get to sit around and pick out which verses they wanted. They heard the whole thing as a whole community all together in the same situation. And try to hear how the the section about the state fits into the flow of this whole text, okay? Remembering that Paul has just reminded us that the state has utterly failed in making the world a better place. Reminding us that power fails unless it comes from grace. That sinners and not saints are the ones who are called to wield this power. And that we're part of that, but not the most important part of it, right? Here we go. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace that was given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministry, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope. But take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God, not Caesar. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. If you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. For the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath, but also also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, Respect to respect is due. Honor to honor is truly due. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And besides all this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling, in drunkenness, or debauchery, and licentiousness, or in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Then he goes on for another chapter, talking about not judging people, and welcoming those who are weak, and providing hospitality. In all of that, the greatest, mightiest power in the universe, Rome, gets seven verses, and not even mentioned. It doesn't say that government is instituted by Caesar, but by God. It's throwing shade at the government in a major way, sticking them in this footnote about how the people of Romans are supposed to live. And guess what? He's turning their idea of Roman virtue on its head too. Because in the midst of all that stuff, the marching orders that the church is given are take care of your enemies, welcome the stranger, pay no one evil with evil, don't execute judgment, love radically. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there, Paul lays out the arsenal that the church is provided with to be an agent of God's new creation. And in the midst of all that, yeah, the government has a function too it wields the sword. It wields the sword against those who do the wrong thing, which, as Christians, we should wait, say, like, wait, the, the government is supposed to punish people who do the wrong thing? Well, what about the church? Don't we get to. Wait, there's no mention of the church getting to punish people? We don't get to kill the evildoers? We have to forgive them and love them and welcome them into our community. We have to show them love and hospitality. That's God's big plan for God's um, Marine Corps, the church. Uh, we're supposed to fight the powers of evil and darkness by welcoming, the, welcoming our enemies and like forgiving them. And we're supposed to like, care for people who persecute us and pray for them, right? Hopefully you've heard this stuff before, right? This is like the, the stuff that we all say like in the Sermon on the Mount we really love about Jesus uh, and we love about being Christians, and right here, God, uh, Paul is contrasting them with the Romans' power. In fact, Paul mentions two swords in this text. It's like he really, although he calls one of them the armor of light, right? In Romans, um, uh, where is it? Sorry, 12, 12, right? Um, that word armor actually is a Greek word that can also mean weapons or sword. So here we have two swords. The state is kind of like the dumb ogre with a big axe. If someone gets too close to the edge and is about to fall off, Paul says, yeah, God's going to use him to hook him back or to swing him back. If that guy's about to go and, like, kill somebody and you can't persuade him, otherwise the state will take care of him, right? The state can punish him. There is a function for protecting the innocents against evil. That's all he says the state gets to do. If an evildoer is getting away with it, hurting someone else, violating the law, then the state will step in. Don't kill them. Don't attack them. Don't condemn them. Don't judge them. Love them. Try to love them enough so that they don't get so close to the edge so the state doesn't have to pick them up. But that's the function of the state here. The mighty Roman Empire, which proclaims itself as the bringer of peace to the whole universe, is kind of like the jailer. <laughs> the, the guy who stands at the edge of the cliff with the thing saying, don't jump over here. You know? I just think of like Andre the Giant from uh, The Princess Bride, right? And he just <laughs> has that kind of a function. Like, okay. he's, just, he's the muscle, right? The state is just the muscle. But the church... That's all the state's power is from God. If people go too far and you need to protect other people, okay, go at it, Fido. He's like their guard dog. That's what Paul is saying about the state in this passage. In this whole book about overthrowing and overturning rules. And overturning roles and redefining power. The state's power is there to make, even the word he uses for it, the state is is God's servant, is the word deacon. It's it's God's deacon. He's not even the priest, okay? (laughs) No offense to the deacons or anything, but he's not even the pastor. He's not even the bishop. He's just one of the helpers who wears the white gloves and makes sure that kids stay in their seats in the pews. That's what the state is supposed to do. But the church is called to wield the weapons of light, the armor of Christ to put on Jesus, to wield love actively in the midst of the world and in the flow of the book of Romans and in the context of history. It's a radical statement to say you little band of believers hiding for your lives believing that as sinners God loves you and has redeemed you and given you power you are the center of the universe not Rome. You are the ones with power to transform this broken world. You have been given the weapons of light. You have been clothed in Christ. You have the mission of the gospel which is the power of salvation for all. And it might sound not such a big deal because we hear these words like gospel and power all the time. But it's real power. The state can only punish people. And once in a while, if there's good people in the state, sometimes it can, um, it can kind of make some good things happen. And sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that the state is doing more than it can actually do rather than remembering that the people who are sometimes staffing the state are the ones pushing the state in the right direction rather than the state pushing the church in the right direction. But Christians don't just punish people. We don't just prevent evil. We are called to actively work for love, to wield these weapons of light in the midst of the world and to make good things happen by loving our enemies, by feeding and clothing our enemies, by providing hospitality, by preaching this gospel that it's not about what you do, what you have, or how powerful you are, but what Christ has done which liberates you, guarantees your human dignity, and empowers you to be a force for good in the world. You too can be part of this force, not because you're an aristocrat or a member of the government or a rule of your political party, but because you're a sinner who has experienced grace and knows the way the world really works. That's what the transforming of our minds is all about, seeing the world as God sees it and not as Rome or the state sees it. Too often, we as the church give up our responsibility. We give up that power because we're so focused on success. We're so focused on results. We're so focused on following the timeline that the world and the state and others have put on us that sometimes we abandon the faithful work that God has promised us will make all things new. We put down the armor and the weapons of light and say, it's okay to give the state a bigger sword to let the state wield some of our weapons of light on our behalf because we're paying them taxes to do it and it's okay for... And then they take our weapons of light and use them to oppress and use them to hurt and use them to legislate against groups of people or to enslave them or to take away their rights. And we as the church get indignant about that when we're the ones who've given them up in the first place. And we as the church need to reclaim our place in the struggle against the death-creating forces of the world, and realign ourselves with the mission of God, which is to give life to this world that God loves, regardless of whether the lives we save join our church or not. Regardless of whether those lives become awesome Christians or they keep being sinners, God says life matters. Work for the life of the world. Transform this reality with your love. I want to end by a concrete story about this, which relates back to the reason why um, Scott was preaching last week. And it concerns a town in Tennessee called Morrisville. I just read about this the other day, and I want to get my uh, sheet about this. Morristown, Tennessee. In April of this year, ICE came through and raided a factory where 97 immigrants were working. They didn't punish the owners of the factory for illegal practices. They took all that out on the most vulnerable people. The people the factory had taken advantage of. To this day, the factory hasn't been audited. The employers haven't been busted. But over 160 children are now wondering if their parents are going to come back because they're sitting in ICE uh, detention facilities. The government has the power to punish, but not very well because it can't even punish the right people sometimes, right? It just looks at the dumb evidence and says, we want to keep prospering, so we'll get rid of the illegals to make everyone happy. And that's okay, the state does need to enforce the law, but it's not even enforcing the law in the right place. And when this happened, it disrupted the whole town of 30,000 because now all these children, including some whose parents are there legally, quote-unquote, are unsure whether their parents are going to get picked up. Now their parents aren't making money, and so there's more children in need of childcare and in poverty, and there's families in disarray. And one lawyer, who is just a regular white person, said, my first thought was, oh, goodness, This is going to hurt so many people in the community. It's going to hurt their kids, our kids. It's going to have a ripple effect throughout the community. So immediately I drove over to my parish center to see what I can do to help. It's packed. And I say, I'm an attorney. How can I help? Lots and lots of people like this went to the parish center of St. Patrick's Catholic Church, which reorganized itself into a crisis response center. Coordinated volunteers, collected donations, invited people to stay in it as a shelter, provided childcare for children whose parents had been ripped away from them, provided care and companionship. Members of the community oppressed this church. Said, why are you supporting lawbreakers? Why are you siding with illegals? Why aren't you taking the side of the state when it's the right thing to do? One pastor said, As a minister of the gospel, my concern is for affected families, and especially the innocent children. These people are my neighbors and live in my community. Our congregation and the community is divided on the issue, but I try to keep it humanitarian, not political, certainly not racial. They organized a huge procession through the town where um, all the people got together. They brought other people in from out of town to try to protest this happening. People threw rocks at them. People oppressed them. And yet the church was at the center of this effort, this political effort of organizing people together to say, we stand with people, not policies. We support the victims of the state's aggression, not the state's ability to uh, perpetuate that aggression. We as the church need to be more bold about what we're willing to do to take care of people, even if the government doesn't like it. Even if people were afraid of, critique us. Not for some political agenda, not for some um, way to put it on our website so we can get social justice points and maybe get some new members to our church. Every single church should be converting its basement into a place where people who are fleeing oppression and hatred can hide out. Every church should be a place that people can look at and see, that's real power. They can protect me. They will stand with me against the powers of evil and death in this world. That's real power. The reason slavery fell apart in this country is because Christians refused to submit, created underground railroad sessions, stood up in Congress, made every effort to go against what others said was just the law of the land. They reclaimed their power. What I want to say to us here gathered is that you don't have to be a huge radical or a revolutionary to embrace this power. You can do it just like this woman who was an attorney could. by taking in the gifts that God has given you, including your brokenness and your failures, and wielding them as weapons of light in the midst of places of oppression. The government can legislate how many people you should hire of color in your workplace, but they can't change a workplace culture to embrace those people. You, as a Christian, can. You can be the person in your office who refuses racist or sexist or homophobic talk and goes to the board and says, we need to hire more people of color, not because of the policy, but because it's the right thing to do. We need to take care of our kids in the public schools, even no matter how much the state is spending on things, because it's the right thing to do, and I'm willing to put my body and my resources and my gifts and my time on the line. That is the power that the church wields. Just like these folks, who were just part of a regular Catholic church in the town, suddenly became crisis responders because they used the resources that they had on hand. This church, each one of us, has power. We have political power. We have prophetic power. We have the power of the gospel, not just so that we can go to heaven when we die, but so that we can be part of God's kingdom, wielding these weapons of light against the forces of darkness. And every single little act we do, no matter how insignificant or inconsequential it might seem to us, is a strike against the enemy which seeks to bring death into the world. It is a victory for God's gospel, which seeks to make all things new which seeks to bring life to the world that God loves. What is your sword? What are your weapons of light? Can you, like David, refuse to put on Saul's armor, which is too big and clunky and was never meant for us in the first place? And when you go to fight the giants of our time, like Goliath, things that seem overwhelming to us, what are your weapons you're going to take? What are your stones? How are you going to say, my faith and my trust is in the Lord, I will refuse to do violence against my enemies, but I will refuse not to, do not, not to do anything. I will refuse to do nothing. I'll stand up with my gifts. I'll stand up as the church and wield the sword of light that God has given us. That's what Romans 13 is really about. It's not about us giving up our sword to the state so that they can make a mess of it. It's about us saying, yeah, they're one part of it. But we've got a bigger call. We've got more responsibilities. We've got more power. Are we willing to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the enemy, and make the world new? Amen. One of the ways that God does provision us for this fight and for this struggle um, is by gathering us together in community, by forming us into a body of Christ with many different gifts, just like he talked about at the beginning of Romans 12. Not all of us are activists. Not all of us are lawyers. Not all of us are teachers. Some of us have actually gifts by being business people and by being uh, mechanics and by being other things that, like some of us, like pastors, have no clue how to do. Um, But God binds us together so we can support one another, so we can be more together than we are on our own, so that we can be a force for God's new creation in the world. And God does that by sharing, calling us to share a meal together, and provisioning us not with the works of the flesh, but with. The work of Christ's flesh, the work of Christ's love, the symbol and the sacrament of God's promise that while we were yet sinners, Christ has died for us. Christ has empowered us. Christ has called you right where you're at in order to be one of God's agents of making things new. And Christ did this on the night in which he was betrayed by taking bread. He broke it blessed it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. He took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. Jesus offers this symbol, this broken body, this poured-out blood, these sacraments that remind us and participate us in those events show us where the true power that is remaking the world truly is. Not in the halls of government, not in the places of wealth and privilege and prosperity, but where we embrace our own brokenness, where we embrace God's upside-down world, and we become agents of that new reality. So all who are feeling drawn to this meal, who follow Christ and long to participate, are welcome and encouraged to come forward. Come taste the invitation of grace. Come accept the challenge to be part of God's making this world new. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.